to ever mention money or to solicit funds or to let somebody come in and, and pitch something because to me that's not what the church is about and you understand that. Um, but the reason why I made a little bit of an exception tonight with this is that I, I really don't know many ministries like this one where every penny that you give goes directly to the cause. There is no overhead, there is no bureaucracy, there's no paid staff. It's literally all the guys who work at this end and at the other end um, work other jobs and support themselves, and they do this so that basically if you give them $5, $5 goes to a well. And I, that's just, that's so commendable to me. And to know that the gospel is preached, that this is connected to churches that are planted, and, and, and Jesus isn't shy about saying what he will do if you give a cold, cup of cold water to somebody in his name. And it's really one of the ways that he decides that he could determine, hey, who really are his children? So this is a real literal way to be able to do what our Lord has commanded us to do. And again, because you've given, we've been able to help. And I want you to understand what a privilege that is. And to challenge you, if the Lord lays it on your heart, um, you know, that at any time when, if they get more money, they dig more wells. That's the way it works. And they have a list of places that they've prioritized where they would, where they're ready to go. And, and so, you know, I, you know how much water, how much money we spend on bottled water and our tap water is totally fine. It just feels better. It's a little more comfortable or cold or whatever. Not to mention all the money that we spend on Coke and Diet Coke and coffee and all of these things. I mean, we here you're talking about a nation where people don't have anything healthy to drink unless someone helps them. And here, you know, I was just thinking, what if every time, you know, we had a bottle of bottled water. We just, in our head, added it up and chalked it up, and what we spent on our own bottled water, then we also decided to take an equal amount, and, and believe me, it'll buy a lot more water over there than it will here. And, and just to do that, and as, as our way of not only doing what our Lord commands us, but as well as that, just to be connected to our brothers and sisters that are halfway around the world in that way. And I, I think um, it's something to think about and pray about and not going to muscle you, not even going to take an offering tonight. That's not the intent. Just if the Lord speaks to your heart, you know, I'd rather have you have to work a little bit and figure out how to give the money away rather than for us to just grab it from you tonight. So anytime, if you want to help, though, with this ministry, just... Stick something in the offering and put on it on the envelope or write on the check, Water Africa, and we'll know what that is and we'll make sure that we, that we get it into this ministry. So, thanks. And now let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 11. So we continue our study through the, this amazing book of Romans. We, introduced, we went into chapter 11 last week, started into it, and 
Again, Paul is here wrapping up, really in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he's talking about the situation with the Jews and how, okay, now we have the church and people are coming to Christ and in a lot of ways, we are benefiting from the promises that God had made to Israel and yet, um, we're not the same as Israel. We haven't taken the place of Israel. He makes that really clear. So what's the deal with Israel? And he's been going through that in this discussion. Now, in the first 10 verses, he talks about the fact that, that they've been blinded as a result of their own rebellion. And, of course, he's already said it's not that a complete blindness because Paul was a Jew and he got saved and there were plenty of Jews. Most of the first converts were Jews. His disciples were Jews. Um, so it's not impossible for them to get saved, but it does seem that as they harden their hearts, then it becomes more difficult for them to be saved. Thus, God is reaching out primarily today to Gentiles all over the world. And so Paul continues to discuss how that works and how that connects with the promises that he has made to Israel that, that really have not been fulfilled. And they certainly aren't fulfilled by the church at this point. Because God made promises to Israel that were very specific geographically and things like that that certainly haven't been fulfilled yet. So either God doesn't keep his promises or he wasn't that serious about it or they weren't unconditional even though they were said to be or God's not finished with Israel yet and will continue to work with them. And let me say this, it is a confusing issue for a lot of people because, as we'll see in chapter 11, we've been grafted in, we are partaking in a part of what God had promised to Israel, and so it's an honest mistake, I think it's a mistake, for people to say, well, the church is spiritual Israel, and therefore God doesn't care anymore about that place in the Middle East that country and those Jewish people, um, they had their chance, they're tossed aside, and now God is dealing just with the church. There are a couple of reasons why I can see that. For one thing, we are connected spiritually with the promises that God made to Israel. And there's still a distinction. Paul makes it very clearly when he just says he would give up his own salvation in chapter 9 if he could get the children of Israel, his brothers according to the flesh, saved. Um, but, uh, you know, so it can get kind of confusing. And in the church, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. He Christ tore down that partition. And so today, whether we are Jewish or whether we are Gentile, we all come to faith in God through Jesus Christ, trusting in him and, and in his death and resurrection. Um, so, and then once the children of Israel were kind of tossed out, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by Titus, and then basically they lost their homeland for uh, well over a thousand years, then I can see why there were people who said, look, God's made all these promises to Israel, but there is no Israel, therefore, I guess we're it. I guess we are Israel. And it, it was, sometimes it was a sincere mistake, sometimes it was a deliberate mistake, 
by people who were anti-Semitic, by people who hated the Jews, who blamed the Jews for Jesus' death and so on. And so a part of that was the bias of the Roman church, for instance, but a part who wanted to say we inherit all the promises that were made to Israel. But, but even beyond that, it was, it's a, it was a reasonable thing when Israel was gone for anyone, and that's why so many among, uh, uh, not, just, not just the Catholics, and, but the Orthodox and, and the, even the Presbyterians and Anglicans and so, so many of the denominations that existed before, you know, back at the beginning of the 20th century, it was practically universal in a lot of ways that you just assume that the church is Israel. But once Israel became a nation, and really that momentum began at the beginning of the, of the 20th century, and then in 1948 by being recognized by the United Nations and by the world pretty much, and then Israel building up you know, as, a, as a national power, as an economic power, um, as much as they are threatened by everyone, and today almost all their neighbors, a couple of exceptions, they get along okay with Egypt and they get along okay with Jordan right now, um, but most of those other countries would rather have them wiped off the map, and some of them, like Ahmadinejad in Iran, he's a complete nut, who his one intention is to destroy Israel. You can understand why they get a little sensitive about that. Um, and sometimes they can be hard to deal with too. But the point is, God has done an amazing thing in bringing the children of Israel back to their land and in establishing them and supernaturally protecting them. Now, they still haven't fulfilled the promises because most of the Jews who are in Israel don't believe in Jesus as their Messiah. But the prophecies let us know that a day will come when that happens and they accept Jesus as their Messiah and now they are in relationship with him and that certainly hasn't happened yet. Okay, so that's a little bit of background on it. There are a whole lot of people who don't even think that people who are Jews biologically have any uh, promises yet to be fulfilled. But if you look at the promises, it's very clear that many of them haven't yet been fulfilled. So... Picking up with verse 11 in Romans chapter 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So according to Paul, yeah, they've, they've kind of fallen in a way, but it's not a permanent fall. God's intention by working with the Gentiles is to then cause the Jews to become jealous. It, it seems, it's hard to grasp this completely because it sounds like such a junior high kind of thing, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend type of a deal, but it's not that. Don't take all of the connotations of jealousy that we have within our culture, but the basic function of the word exists and it's that God is blessing Gentiles in order to get the attention of the Jewish people. Now, if that sounds silly to you, remember God's motivation is simply to fulfill his promises and to get as many people in heaven as he can. 
to save as many people as who will respond to the gospel. And that includes Jewish people. And he still has a plan for them. And so right now, he wants the Jews to look at Gentiles who are being blessed by their God, by their Messiah, and he wants that to have an effect on them. Now, people are funny emotionally, and and for some of them, the effect hasn't been as positive as you might expect because they are upset. Many of them are, are mad that we are talking about their Messiah. Even though they don't believe Jesus was the Messiah, they hate the fact that we believe that he is. Their, their attitude is, hey, Messiah's ours. Well, accept him. Well, that's not him. Then what's your problem with us? <laughs> but, but see, it's this thing where it really is working on them and having an effect on them. And ironically, internationally, with so much that's going on, what's happened is the Jews who at one point were just radical enemies of Christians. And that wasn't necessarily the Jews' fault. That was sometimes the fault of Christians historically. Um, And that was a tragedy because in so many ways, we, like Paul, ought to be deeply concerned for the Jews. Our hearts ought to be all for seeing them come to accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And yet, because sometimes the church didn't do a good job at that, and if you go to the um, Holocaust Museum, especially the one um, in Israel, the, the first section of the Holocaust Museum, after you go into the kind of the lobby, is all of the Christian propaganda against the Jews. And there's a lot of it, some pretty damning quotes from various popes and things like that. And even to this day, you know, the present pope was just over in Israel. He got into some trouble and some hot water because there's a lot of sensitivity still that's there. And then he went to the Holocaust Museum, but he wouldn't walk inside where it has all these quotes from the Catholic Church and the fact that, you know, how much they were against Israel and everything, but it's still a real sore subject with the Jews, and that's one thing that still separates Christians and Jews is they take offense at that. They take offense at the fact that Adolf Hitler was um, a professing Christian. Of course, Hitler wasn't a Christian. That's ridiculous. But he was a member in good standing in the Catholic Church, um, and Hitler was, it's weird, I mean, I know people who have been kicked out of the Catholic Church, and yet Hitler never was, remained a member in good standing. It's kind of weird. You'd think if you were ever going to excommunicate anyone, you'd go, yeah, he's a good candidate. But there's weird things that went on between there. But again, God is using all of that, and his heart is still, even in the offensiveness, even in the the division that's there, God wants the Jews to be affected by seeing how God is working with the Gentiles. And so he says, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, verse 12, if their fall is riches for the world, in other words, when when the Jews rejected the Messiah, it was the greatest blessing that could have happened to everyone else. 
Because as John said in John chapter 1, he came unto his own and his own received him not. So as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. So it's like he came to us because they rejected him. And so their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles. We made out because of them rejecting him in a, in a weird sort of a way. How much more their fullness He's saying, if so many Gentiles and so many people in the world were blessed just because Jesus was rejected by his own people, how much more of a blessing is it going to be when they turn to him? What a great celebration. What a wonderful you know, unity there will be when, when all of a sudden there we are as Christians, and I believe at this point, we will be in heaven, we will have been raptured, but here we are as Christians, and then to see a massive amount of Jews in Israel to accept Jesus Christ is just going to be like, wow, the, the picture is being completed. All of us who have shared the Lord with Jews and just ran into a brick wall, and all of the things that you know we, we've, we've thought, why can't they accept Jesus as their Messiah? Well, the day when they do, oh man, that's going to be a great day for everyone. And that's what Paul's saying. He's not finished with them, and you've benefited because of their rejection, but I'm telling you something, when the whole picture is completed, it's going to be that much more of a blessing. Again, this wouldn't be the case if the church is Israel. I hope I don't want to labor on that too much because if you're amillennial, you'll just get madder and madder at me. I, if you want to be amillennial, that's fine with me. You can, you can be wrong. It's okay. But <laughs> not really. If we spent some more time together, I'm sure there are a whole lot of other areas where you're wrong too. But <laughs> verse 13, for I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles and I magnify my ministry Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and God gave him the job of being the apostle to the Gentiles, and he saw the irony in that. He saw how strange it was. He was a guy who was persecuting Christians, and God called him to go reach Gentiles for Jesus Christ. He had all the expertise to be the apostle to the Jews. More than Peter, Peter was more or less the apostle to the Jews. Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't somebody that really knew the law really well. He knew how to fish and how to talk, you know, and say the wrong things. Paul was the perfect guy to be the apostle to the Jews. And in a lot of ways, Peter was a great guy to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And in fact, Peter was the first one to really reach Gentiles. Remember in Acts chapter 10, when he was there at the house of Simon the Tanner and Cornelius sent representatives to him and, and, and Peter had this vision of a, of a sheet full of you know, ham sandwiches and stuff and God told him to eat and then he's like, no way, Lord. And he goes, yes way, eat it. And Peter's like, hey, ham's pretty good. And then he goes down, goes up to Cornelius's house, and, and then Peter was the one who later testified in, in, uh, at the church council in Acts 15 about how the Holy Spirit had come on the Gentiles and everything. So 
In a way, a crusty fisherman would be a logical guy to reach the Gentiles. He had had that experience, and he was pretty much swayed by eating a ham sandwich. But, not literally. But, um, but it's funny how God doesn't pick the logical person to do something. And a lot of times, he picks the person who is the most unlikely person. It's why we can't decide you know, who ought to be serving God in different ways, but it all comes down to being led by His Spirit because God shies away from people who are too good at what they do because it's hard for Him to get the glory that way. And so over in 1 Corinthians when He said, there are not many wise men, not many nobles, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And a part of that was, I'm going to get the most Jewish guy I know and I'm going to make him an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, on the surface, it doesn't make sense, but in the context of this passage, it makes great sense because the idea, and he's going to go into it here in just a few verses, our tendency, if we take, you know, get the blessings away from the Jews and now we're participating in it, our tendency is to rub their nose in it, is to think we're better than they are and therefore to look down on them. And that's what, for the most part, the history of the Christian church has been, looking down on the Jews as those who rejected Christ. But a guy like Paul, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a guy who would give his own salvation if he could so that Israel would be saved, that's the perfect heart of someone who would experience the blessings of grace. That's where anyone's heart ought to be. But Paul understood it because he had lived that legalistic life and realized what a dead end it was. And, and so he came to appreciate and understand grace more than anyone. And at the same time, he could bring the gospel to the Gentiles with the idea that God's not finished with Israel yet, and there are still things that he's going to do, and we can't afford to just look down on them at all. We should be praying for them. So he says, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. He goes, as I am preaching to Gentiles, everything I do as a preacher to the Gentiles, in the back of my mind I'm thinking, oh God, please, use this to reach some Jews. Use this to bring some of your people to yourself. Now, Jews don't get saved a lot, but when they do, it's a real blessing. It's a, it's a precursor to what God is going to end up doing during the tribulation period, during the 70th week of Daniel. Um, and so it is special when they do. I, I have some friends who, uh, you know, several of them who are Jewish Christians, and boy, they've got a spunk and a fire to them, and a, they're cheap. But, you know, well, let's face it. But at the same time, there's something incredibly special about them and especially unique. You just see that touch of God where it really takes a lot for one of them to get saved because that's running contrary to kind of the basic trends of things nowadays. And so Paul was like, man, I'm preaching to Gentiles and I'm thankful that they're getting saved but I'm also hoping that the Jews take notice. I'm hoping they pay attention to it. 
It's why it's so exciting that today the biggest supporters, the only supporters really, of Israel are Christians. And they don't always know how to deal with that, but believe me, they know. They get it. They understand. And, and so Paul is saying, yeah, that's, that's the way God designed it. Verse 15, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So if the rest of the world is getting saved because of God putting them on hold as a priority, then just imagine what it's going to be like when they come to an awareness of Jesus as their Messiah. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. So if it starts good, it gets better. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So if it's starting out and it's great, better things are yet in store. And if some of the branches were broken off, as they were, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, so they're seen as a domesticated olive tree, and some of the branches of that olive tree, the nation of Israel, were broken off because they rejected Jesus. And then we were like picked up on a wild olive bush somewhere, and we were straggly, kind of, you know, ne'er-do-wells, and, and we were grafted into that tree. You being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. So you got plugged into something that they started. Do not boast against the branches. Don't think you're better than they are. Because it was only God's grace that saved you. And it's only God's grace that anyone gets saved. And this is a word to us about our attitude toward the Jews, but this is a word to us about our attitude toward anyone who doesn't know Jesus Christ. Don't think you're better than they are. It's only, the only thing that separates you from anyone else is God's grace. It doesn't make you somebody extra valuable or extra smart because you accept that grace. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So if you're going to get in a bragging contest, they got there first. Verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. Be respectful. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So he says, don't get cocky about your position because they rejected him and were therefore cut off, you start thinking it's about you and not about God and his grace, hey, pride comes before a fall, and you might just get snapped off yourself. Now, what does that do to your understanding of eternal security? Um, you know, what... We, no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. 
these things, First John 5, these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay, we know those things. And we know that salvation doesn't come by what you do. It comes by the faith that you've put in Jesus Christ. And so there's no reason for us not to feel secure in our salvation. Salvation started the day you were saved, and it goes on forever. That's why we call it eternal life. However, God, the Bible just never wants you to be too sure of yourself if you're not showing the fruit in your life to know that you really are a child of God. And so he says, you need to have a balance of an appreciation for God's goodness and an appreciation for his severity. And those people who rejected him were broken off the tree. And he says, hey, what makes you think that you won't get broken off the tree if you reject him as they did? Now, what do you do with that? Um, I don't know. I could... I could explain it away by pretending like it doesn't say that. I could just ignore it and skip right over it and make you all feel so comfortable in your salvation. But there are too many passages of Scripture that warn us. I mean, Hebrews has several. Hebrews 4, Hebrews 6. You know, and, and of course you have Jesus in a similar metaphor in John's Gospel when he, he says you know, that you need to abide in him and if you don't abide in him, you'll be cast out and burned up. Doesn't sound really good. So what does it mean to abide in him? Uh, what are these warning passages about? I don't know. Um, and, I, and I think that the Bible gives it a really good balance. By If you're walking in fellowship with God, you should feel absolutely secure and comfortable. But... If you are a prideful jerk, shouldn't feel comfortable. You should never, if you're somebody who's walking in pride and who's doing things your own way and the fruit of the Spirit just isn't showing in your life, you should not be secure. And I would never want to be the one to tell you, oh, you can continue just being the way you are. You have nothing to worry about. I wouldn't want to tell you that. And then when you get to hell, you're like, hey, Pastor Dave, what, what's up? So I'm just telling you what the Bible says. So if you're walking with him, abiding in him, no problem. Where do you draw the line? At what point do you get to that point where you ought to start to worry? I don't know, but why do you want to see how close you can get to the point? I would rather see how far away I can stay from that line. And so I want to be as close to Jesus Christ as I possibly can. And then I don't have to worry about this passage and how you interpret it and what you do with it. I don't know why anyone would want to. So continue in his goodness. Then you won't be cut off. But if you reject his goodness, hmm, <laughs> he says, yeah, you shouldn't be so comfortable. Verse 23, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. He goes, anybody who rejects Jesus can always decide to receive him. And so 
with the children of Israel who have rejected them and been cast off to the side, if they're like, hey, this isn't fair. Why were we cut out of the deal? He goes, oh, you want to be a part of the deal? Here, I'll plug you right back in. Well, no, I don't want to do that. Well, then quit complaining. If you, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. He offers salvation to anyone who wants it. Anyone who doesn't want it doesn't have a right to argue about it. Anyone who receives him, it's fine. And if you've been rejecting him and you used to believe in him and now you don't, just accept him. Well, was I really a Christian before? Am I backslidden? Did I really lose myself? Who cares? Just start walking with him. He will not turn you away. And he won't turn anyone away. And when the Jewish people turn to Jesus, he'll receive them. And that's what he wants to have happen. And that's why Paul tried to minister to them. I believe that he wrote the book of Hebrews specifically to try to reach Israel as his tract to them, even though his call primarily wasn't to them. And it's Hebrews is the most powerful argument to the Jewish people to receive the gospel that you could ever find. Um, and I think it came from the heart of Paul. Uh, verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. It's a mystery because it, you know, it wasn't all laid out ahead of time. It's, it's now being revealed. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So he says this time of blindness, and therefore, in conjunction with that, this time of primarily Gentiles getting saved is only for a specific period of time until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, over in um, Luke 21, you can turn over there because it's, it's an important passage. In Luke's accounting of the... Um, of the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus was responding, like, when's this stuff going to happen, and how's it going to go down? In Luke 21 and verse 24, he's talking about a time of great trouble in Jerusalem. And, you know, when that happens, flee to the mountains and so on. Woe to those who are pregnant and all. Verse 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then he goes on to talk about the tribulation period and ultimately the return of Christ. Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Back here in Romans chapter 11, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is what we as dispensationalists refer to as there's a period of time in which God is primarily dealing with Gentiles, and that's today. This started with their rejection of Jesus Christ, and it continues. And sure enough, Gentiles are trampling all over Jerusalem, certainly. Now, during much of this time, there was no Jewish presence in Jerusalem at all. The Moslems came in, took it over, and so on. Different people have, even the British, 
you know, when was the last time you ever saw the British take over anything? But um, other than maybe the pop music world. But, you know, this time of the Gentiles, when does that end? Well, it seems like in, in Luke 21 that there's a shifting of gears in which Jerusalem is at the hub of that, and as the Gentiles stomping on Jerusalem are pushed out of the way, then the time that Jesus refers to of judgment that we would call the tribulation period, and then ultimately the return of Christ. So it would seem like what Paul and, and Jesus are teaching is that there's an era where primarily Gentiles are getting saved. The day is going to come when that stops being the case. God is again dealing with Israel, drawing Jews to himself, and they turn to him, repent, accept Jesus Christ. And we see that in the book of Revelation. Um, we see references to it in the book of Daniel as well, and Ezekiel, and that's one of the reasons why I personally believe that the rapture of the church that Paul talks about in First and Second Thessalonians and in First Corinthians 15 and in Titus 2, I believe that, that the rapture of the church happens as an end to the time of the Gentiles. Because at that point, the Holy Spirit, as he is in the Christians, is taken out of the way as Christians are snatched away now all of a sudden it's all about jerusalem it's not about the gentiles anymore and as the antichrist makes a pact with israel and has virtual peace for three and a half years before the abomination of desolation and then all hell breaks loose but the jewish people 144,000 of them are sealed and there's a massive return to accepting Jesus Christ as the Messiah. If the Christians were still on the earth during the tribulation period, as people who believe in post-trib and even mid-trib believe, um, it's hard to say how the time of the Gentiles has ended. Because I don't care what's going on, I don't care, 144,000 Jews is a drop in the bucket there are millions of Jews in Beverly Hills alone in New York City. So if, if Gentile domination ends when the time of the Gentile ends, then it doesn't make sense that during the tribulation period you would still have millions and millions of Gentile Christians on the earth, and yet you're saying the time of the Gentiles is over. You see what I'm saying? So that's one reason why I you know feel that and... Again, I'm not going to die for this conviction, but I feel that the Bible teaches that there is a shifting that after Jesus rose from the dead, his attention was primarily to Gentiles, has been for the last couple thousand years, and when the church is taken out of the way, then once again, he will be dealing with the Jews primarily for a period of seven years, which is the 70th week, 70th sevens of Daniel. And so, again, this, this passage supports that. And so, verse 26, all Israel will be saved as it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 59, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob 
for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So there will be a massive revival among the Jewish people in the future. Verse 28, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So when it comes to the gospel, yeah, they're enemies right now. They are rejecting the gospel. But because of who their dads are, because of the heritage, because they are descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and all of the great you know, fathers of the faith, God still isn't finished with them because of their biological connection. They're beloved for the sake of the fathers. For, verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The deal that he made with them, he's going to keep his word. He's not going to make a different deal. He's not going to substitute something else. The gifts and the calling of God, if he makes a promise, an unconditional promise, he is going to fulfill that promise. It's as simple as that. And Paul makes that very clear here. Hey, God said he's going to do it. He's going to do it. You can take it to the bank. 4, verse 30, As you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. So you got mercy when they rejected God, God's going to use that to then draw them to that mercy as well. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. It's still his heart to have mercy. And he, everything that God is doing is opening the door for his mercy. And, and that's true. It, God's sovereignty is amazing because he will use catastrophe in order to open a pathway for the gospel. And so often people who struggle with the idea of the, what we call theodicy, the problem of evil, why does God allow pain and suffering? You know, you, you can look, for instance, at, at what's happened in a nation like Uganda. And you think, where was God? These poor kids and these, you know... Why does God allow such things? And yet, God is brilliant. And he knows what it's going to take for him to draw as many people to himself and to get as many people in heaven as he legitimately can by their own choosing. And the truth is, and, and he uses the acts of horrible people sometimes in order to do it, even as he used Nebuchadnezzar, um, to judge Israel and then draw them back to himself, to repentance, when people reject God, often bad, bad, bad things happen, and yet, in, in the mind of God, he knows that's the best way possible for people to be drawn to his mercy. And so he's going to great lengths in order to save as many Jews as he possibly can in the final analysis, even as for every one of us, for many of us, the worst things that ever happened to us was exactly what drew us to Jesus Christ, what caused us to know that we needed him. And so 
you look at a nation like ours where we enjoy such amazing freedom and yet where there's such a, a, a flaky level of commitment to Jesus Christ, where people can be just out and out blasphemous and they just think it's funny. They just, that's just humor in our country. That's just entertainment. And we as Christians can sit there and, and laugh while the world is rejecting Jesus Christ. And then we look at a country like Uganda where they've undergone just unspeakable horror and yet you look at the hearts of people who then meet Jesus Christ and participate in his mercy and you realize how many of those people would have come to Christ if if it wasn't for the fact that they went through an awful time I, I wouldn't wish it on anyone and yet you know, I guarantee if you took a bunch of bottles of water and you went down to the mall and you started giving it away, three-fourths of the people wouldn't even take it. They're suspicious or they're not thirsty or it's not the right brand. But man, you go to a country that's experienced these kinds of horrors and where disease is in all the water that they drink, talk about an openness to the gospel. God uses that and does mighty works. And I believe that some of the countries, some of the African countries are going to be the leaders in the church of Jesus Christ if Jesus tarries in ways that they were in the past. You know, throughout history, different areas of the world provide the leadership to the gospel. And often... They provide that leadership in the wake of unspeakable horror. And, and that's just the way it works. So I don't second-guess God. Whatever he allows, whatever he is involved in, whatever he does, I praise him. Because it's all about his mercy. And his mercies are new every morning. Every day he thinks of another way to communicate, I love you, to people who need him. And so... Here, this is what Paul is saying about the Jewish people. God knows how to do this. God knows how to communicate what he, the love that he has. And so, so he says, um, verse 32, for God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. He goes, go ahead and disobey, and it's going to hurt, but down the road, you're going to be ready for mercy. And then verse 33, the rest of this chapter is just beautiful. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? Paul goes, God is so smart. His plan is incredible. And nobody else would have ever thought it up. No one else could have ever come up with a plan like this. It's that unsearchable wisdom of God. And we, you know, and he goes, who's going to be his counselor? What are you going to tell God what to do? Do you, oh, you have a problem with evil. So you're looking at life and you're like, I don't think God did this right. Shut up. 
Who do you think you are? You don't know. You don't know how to tell God how to do it. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, and his plan, when you get to heaven and you look back, you're going to go, this was a brilliant plan. This was amazing. And in your own life, Right now, you might be going, why is God making me go through this? Why did I lose my job? Or why uh, can't I have what they have? Or how come I don't do that? And, you know, God's looking at you and going, you have a better plan than me? I'm telling you, when the story is told, you are going to praise him for every scar on your body, for every day that you were hungry, for every time that you didn't get what you asked him for, for every bit of agony, for every time you were rejected, for every time someone hurt you or you did without, you're going to go, how unsearchable is this amazing wisdom of God. His plan, yeah, I couldn't figure it out. It's past finding out, but whoa. When I see it, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. There are people who really worry a lot about You know, what about the people who never hear the gospel? Is it fair that they have to go to hell and burn forever because nobody's ever even told them? You know, we've been studying on Sundays in Ephesians. Come on, they got to have a preacher, and preacher needs to be sent and all that. And, And so we look at it and go, I'm not sure that this is right, that God allows certain people to be born in a country where they hear the gospel all the time, other people born in other countries where they have almost no chance of hearing the gospel. I don't know how that works. I don't know what God is going to do with people who have never heard the gospel. I know that he holds people more accountable who have heard more. I I know that the Bible certainly doesn't seem to teach either annihilation. I, I like the idea of annihilation if everybody just went to hell for a little while and then got burned up. It's, you know, I think every, all, you know, anybody deserves a few years there. But, <laughs> but the problem is when I read the Scriptures, it, it talks about it going on forever. And so I believe what the Scriptures say. I also love the idea of universalism. That somehow we all die and poof, we're all saved. Oh, I wish that was right in my mind. But I'll tell you something Bible makes it pretty clear that that's not the case, um, that we're all condemned unless we put our faith in Jesus Christ, and there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Um, so I don't understand, but I'll tell you something. When the whole story is told, however God deals with the people that didn't hear, however he deals with people who had mental disabilities and weren't seemed able to understand. However, he deals with every one of us. The bottom line, when it's all over, is who has known the mind of the Lord, (laughs) the depth of the riches of his wisdom and knowledge, how unsearchable are his judgments. He's amazing. And everything that he does is glorious and to be praised. And if you don't understand it, it's because you're stupid compared to him. And we're all stupid compared to him. So you don't have to figure it out, but you can just go, I know he has a great plan. And when people ask me, well, what's going to happen to the guy that's never heard? I go, God has a great plan for him. In the end, you're going to think it was fair. Right now, you think it's not fair? 
because you just don't know. And then he finally says his little benediction here at the end of this section, and then chapter 12 moves into a whole, it's a great chapter. But he closes out chapter 11. For of him and through him and to him are all things, it's all about him, to whom be glory forever, amen. It's all to his glory. It's all about him. He is perfect. He is brilliant. His plan for Israel will be fulfilled. I believe that. His plan for every one of us will be fulfilled. I believe that. And someday as we gather around the throne in heaven, we will join together with all of our brothers and sisters Jew and Gentile alike from all over the world and in one accord and with one voice we will sing sincerely, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Let's pray. God, you are holy. I'm so glad that we start with that knowledge and awareness and that when there are things we don't understand, help us to hang on to what we do understand that you are good and righteous and just and perfect and loving and merciful and gracious. We know that. We've seen it in our own lives. Thank you for having a plan, a plan that includes a fulfillment of all your promises to Israel and a plan that allowed us to say yes to you and to be grafted in to that tree. Its roots go back to the very root and offspring of David, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's to his glory and praise that, God, we thank you for your incredible word for your incredible plan and for applying it by your mercy for each of us and allowing us to see the truth and to respond and to believe in you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless you guys. We'll see.